Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Christopher Tejan, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Hey, Jeffrey. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's it's an honor to have you. And, you know, as you know, the audience doesn't, I just discovered your work. And we'll talk a little bit more about how I discovered your work, you know, uh, in a minute when it comes up organically. But uh, I was floored when I saw your work. I love the paint quality. I love the process that you can see in it, but we'll get more into that as well. I mean, the first sure. question I have for you is, how did it all get started? Um, you know, that's a good question. I, uh, I think about it a lot, but I'm not quite 100% sure of where I decided to turn myself into thinking about painting as kind of a career, but uh, my mother was a folk artist. Um, hmm. So she worked mainly with doing things like German Santa Clauses, really? which were kind of odd at the time. Yeah, just our house was full of like these kind of doll heads that she would make out of clay and then blow them. And then she would kind of get into like all these other early colonial systems of art. Um, but we always looked at it as kind of decorative. And I would make things with her or you know, experiment with in her like little studio in the house. Uh, we grew up in Pennsylvania in a, I don't know if you know Delco, but it, it's mm -hmm. kind of a synonymous right outside of West Philadelphia. And it's a, a very unique place because it's kind of outside of the city, but yet still very much the city. And she kind of took all this love of Pennsylvania, early American art, kind of put it into our tiny home and just made it into this place where art wasn't thought about as anything more than just something that you did to create the world around you. So I kind of always knew that that was something that was possible, but I never really kind of got into the idea of it as a career until I um, started to go to high school and uh, take art classes there and kind of found myself looking at painting and sculpture, but I was always kind of, it, funny enough, I actually failed my uh, high school art program. So it always kind of, so it always kind of made one of those things where I was like, well, maybe this isn't for me because I really loved it, but I was thinking very counter to what the school was telling me. And school was not an art school. I went there for sports. Um, Wait, are we still talking so, about high school or college? High school, yeah. You went to high school, so you, you chose your high school for sports? Yeah, so I thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. I thought I was going to, you know, I, I really loved football and I loved competition. I, I It was something that when I got there, I was just like, I you know, I, I want to play pro sports. Um, now that is a high school child thinking that, um, once I started to get more into it 
And we were in, uh, I went to a very competitive school in sports and some of the people I played football with went on to play in the NFL. And it was a, a really rigorous sports program, um, not so much art. And when I went there, I kind of fell in love with thinking about making things, yet um, my teacher didn't agree that that was the right thing for me uh, because of the way that I was thinking about art at the time. Um, very much like a folk artist, like he would have me say, you know, draw a tree and I would more like break it down into a concept of a tree and then do something that was completely design oriented maybe, or just counter to what the lesson was. And that created like a kind of breaking apart of what I thought art was and what they were trying to tell me it was. Um, hmm. from I want to hear more up. about that. Oh, That's right. really interesting. Because yeah. as a high schooler, most of us aren't mature enough in our visual language to to do anything but what the teacher says, you know, unless it's sort of a rebellion. But to me, it sounds like more like you already had a way of seeing um, in high school. I mean, can you attribute that to something? Is it your mother? Is it the folk art she was doing? I think it's a mixture of my mother and my father being very um, practical in the way that they would make things. So my father is an engineer. And, mm -hmm. and an inventor and he would just make all this wild stuff in our house and our, my grandfather was like that too so i was always thinking of it as like things you're kind of you're breaking down and rebuilding um kind of like a makeshift thing and i think what the teacher was trying to teach me is that there's a finesse to things and that there's an elegance to uh, learning these processes. And I was more just like, well, I'll just figure it out. I'll just kind of, you know, take these parts and, and make something that I, I can relate to. And it's not very, like, as a student, I desperately wanted to be good in high school. I really wanted to be, I worked really hard, but it wasn't clicking with when they would say, like, okay, negative shapes. I would think of negative shapes and, and design elements. And I would think of instead of just the black and white, what are like the negative shapes coming in through color? Um, you know, if we had a warm color next to a cool color, they could be tonality um, uh, could be the same, but the color vibrancy could be different. So maybe instead of doing the black and white, like was suggested, maybe I'll go beyond that. And maybe I'll just put two different colors like that are complementary, like the hot orange and a cool blue. And that will create this separation of the shapes what? and do that. Be very proud of it and you... go in and the teacher would be like, this doesn't, this is not what I'm trying. We're trying to teach you design elements in black and white. You're coming in with color. And it's funny, my, he, the teacher actually called my, cause I failed. So the teacher actually called my father in to, we had to go into a meeting and he basically said, look, he loves this stuff but he doesn't listen i think he should be in sports i think he should just do because you could either do gym or you could do art so he said just sign him up and he could do art on his own but this he's not he's not getting it that kind of coincided with the school had this artist i think she was from new york 
come and work with the students. This is, I think, the end of my second year, beginning or beginning of my junior year in high school. And they had this artist come who's this abstract sculptor. And she came and did this program where she was going to teach us how to do sculptures out of Phragmites and uh, paper mache. I don't mm -hmm. know if you know what Phragmites is. I don't. So it's like a bamboo. So she came in and we all kind of, whoever seemed to be the most, the, the most um, kind of natural with the product would get to make a sculpture and compete in this competition. And uh, for some reason they chose me to uh, go on and, and further this sculpture. So I did this big sculpture. I worked with her and she was like, you know, don't listen to anything that these people are saying. Just do what you're doing, figure it out. Um, if you love it, keep going. Okay, to, to so clarify, I, yeah. you said they chose you. Was this the visiting artist that chose you or the faculty yeah. in the high school? So it was the, the visiting artist and uh, there were some other judges also, because it was going to go into a big competition at the, uh, uh, pencil, the, at the Museum of Art uh, in Philadelphia. So it was kind of like one of those things where they were just kind of looking at everything as a kind of who is the most, you know, who knows, but who had, who could do it. Right. And they chose me and I went and I started to go in and just work, you know, after school, I'd go and do these sculptures, went into the competition, ended up winning the competition. And that was kind of when I was like, oh, I can do this. this Not was... bad for a student who failed in art class. I know. <laughs> it, it really, it, it changed the whole trajectory of my thinking because it was one person telling me, no, no, no. And then I had this group of people who gathered around me and saw that I really wanted this. And they introduced me to the head curator at the museum who bought the piece. And then they were like, yeah, let's, um, let's make this work. So they got me an interview with the Academy. That's unbelievable. Up, um, that is that might be one of the coolest stories I've heard yet. So thanks. with with the with your teacher in high school, I mean, it seems to me. Correct me if I'm wrong. And I know it, it, you to answer this honestly, you might you might feel a little pretentious, but I'm I'm giving you liberty here. Just be completely honest. Sure. It seems to yeah. me like what you were doing was more sophisticated than what the teacher was offering you. With, with I, combining different colors yeah, uh, and different temperatures and whatnot? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, so I'll put it this way. I was thinking about the things that I would be doing when I learned the foundational things. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't learning the foundational stuff, um, such as, like, what is the history of art in context to what I'm trying to do technically? My, my, the way that my hand was moving, the connection between my brain and my hand wasn't there yet, but I was thinking like it was. So I think he was trying to break me down because I wasn't getting that part where I was like, learn how to do these drawings a certain way, let go of yourself, find yourself later. I was like, no, I know what I am now. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go. Hmm. And uh, I kind of saw like, I was so upset with him. Um, he didn't go to my, uh, my show there and it was because he forgot, which is fine. But we had this, I, I really did care, and I still do care about him as a teacher. Uh, but 
there was some kind of break there. Um, and it kind of broke my heart at the time. And then I went to college, I kind of hated him. And then I, when I went to the academy, I was kind of like, oh, I kind of get it now, what he was trying to do. Um, I was too young and ambitious at the time to see where I need to start from. So now I'm kind of thinking more back, like I appreciate, I mean, high school, teaching high school must be incredibly difficult. And I was not easy. And so yeah. I, I definitely back on it differently than I did when I was there. Okay, so here's what I'm hearing. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like you were kind of a rebellious teenager who felt like, I want to do things my way. And that, yeah. my, that may or may not have been the negative side of it. But the positive side that I'm seeing is that you were thinking things that I never thought about even when I started college. Because when I started in college, I couldn't even mix a brown. I had no idea how, how color worked at all. And it sounded like... Uh -huh. Even though, yeah, maybe maybe you might have given the teacher the benefit of the doubt and followed the curriculum as as directed, but the fact that when you didn't do that, that you had sophisticated ideas of combining different temperatures of colors when I was in college and couldn't even mix the color brown, that just kind of amazes me that you were thinking at that level, even though maybe you couldn't draw very well is what I'm hearing. Uh -huh. Yeah, I didn't know how to structure these ideas. And I remember when I went, so the, after that kind of period, um, the head curator um, basically said to me, like, look, you have to go to the academy. If you want to learn these structural things, go to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Art. They have a high school program where you can draw from the live model, do nude uh, uh, figure drawing. And I was like, okay, I'm in 100%. So I would go to school to high school, this is my junior year. I would go there all day, do you know, high school things, get on a train, go to the city, do from three o'clock till five o'clock, I would do figure drawing with one of the MFA program students. They would kind of teach us how to draw. Then after that, I would do continuing education um, at the academy. So I was taking credit level courses and studying like right off the bat. Right after that, I was like, I'm gonna learn this foundational stuff. I'm going to work every day, um, started to go to um, the Moore College of Art, had a program for high school students on the weekends, started to do that. So I was literally every day, just working every day. <laughs> You're ambitious. It, it, was, it was one of those times where I look back and I'm like, I don't know how I did it, but it was the sheer force of like, I found something that I loved and I wasn't good at it and I knew I wasn't. And I wanted to get there by the time that it was time for me to enroll in, co in the college courses, um, which was a whole thing. Thank God that I went to, they had this portfolio day and I was, a, I was going there and I, they had all these different, they had the Lyme Academy, they had Temple School of Art, they had all these art schools. And you would go and you bring your portfolio and they would look over it and say, you know, this is okay, this is good, you can get in or you can't get in. They would basically let you in on, on the spot if you were good enough. And I went there with my portfolio, and this is right before I started doing the college courses full-time, and I went to the first school and they gave me a free ride. They said on the spot, like, you can come here, we'll give you a scholarship. And so I'm like, oh my God, I went to another school, same thing. 
And I'm thinking to myself, like, this, this is like everything I wanted. And then the one school that I really wanted to go to, I went to the Academy's booth, um, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Art, and they, the guy looked over and was like, okay, yeah, I see this, I, I see that, I see what you're doing. Um, you're not nearly good enough to get in. Um, so Wait, what why was the difference? Go? What was the difference between the teachers from the other schools and this school? Were they after different criteria? I think so. I think the other schools were maybe pushing a little bit more to, at the time, the academy was very focused on the fundament, the fundamentals. And I, like I said, I just didn't have them. I was thinking like I could do certain things very well, like color theory. I was very good at color theory. I actually wrote a paper that helped me get into the academy after I got rejected there on how the like the neural optics of how you see color when you see warm your eye moves faster and when you see cool your eye moves slower so composing based on temperature so being able to control the eye with different variations of color temperature and i wrote this long paper i think i called it um the is the theory of the rhythmic, rhythmic proportion of warm and hot and i wrote this whole like you wrote this down. in high school <laughs> Yeah, and I sent it in because I was like, they're not going to let me in. I'm going to tell them, look, I have promise. I understand these things. Like, I understand the fund fundamentals very well. Like, I just don't have the connection yet where I can't physically do it. I'm clunky. I'm head-handed. You know, everything is like this The symmetry of, like, eyes from doing portraiture was all wonky. And uh, in folk art, you could get away with these descriptions. But once you start to move into what they were looking for, yeah. they're like, it's interesting, but yeah, conceptually, that's great. But when can you get here and sit in front of a cast and do what we're saying to do? Because if you can't do that, you're not going to be able to go through the academy. Hmm. Um, okay, I so got a question was, um, before you go much yeah. further, because I, I, I yeah. want to touch on this. So Ooh. I'm skeptical that you were as bad as you, as you describe yourself. I think you're you're probably being modest, but I'm going to assume you're not, and you're being completely honest with us about how bad you were at drawing. And but yeah. then you said in high school you uh, you were so passionate. You found something that you loved, and that's what drove your ambition. And uh, I think you know it's funny that you say you were into baseball and you wanted to be a professional baseball player because. I liked sports a lot too growing up, but I, I hockey and basketball were kind of my sports. And um, although yeah. I never did them in high school or anything, I just, it's my own thing. But baseball, when I played baseball, freak man, I could not hit a ball to save my life. And I could not throw a ball straight to save my life. I'd try and throw a ball to first base and it would like go behind me practically. I mean, it was, I don't know what it was because I was athletic and other things, but my point though, in telling you that is I hated baseball because I yeah. sucked at it. I mean, if I'm really honest with myself, I'd say, oh, baseball sucks because it's a dumb sport is what I would tell myself, right? But then the reality was, it was because I sucked so bad at baseball. <laughs> it was so freaking hard to hit that ball. I don't think I ever made contact with that thing. So my question to you is, to me, that seems like human nature. If you're not good at something, it's not enjoyable. You know, if you don't have a natural aptitude for that thing, it's not enjoyable. That's my world view, my, not my life experience. What was it that drove you 
to be so ambitious with this when you didn't believe you were even good at it? That's, oh, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, there was this period in my life where I was waking up every morning and thinking, honestly, I could be great. I could be great. And then I would go to bed every night thinking I'm the worst. And that cycle of waking up in the morning, like, yes, I can do it. And then putting in all your effort and failing. And then the next morning, forgetting about that failure and waking up and still thinking you could do it. Something about that psychology keeps you because the truth of the matter is I didn't think I was terrible. I just didn't know how bad I was until I got better. Oh, so okay. it's kind of that makes more sense. It's kind of one of those. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things where I knew because people were telling me you're very smart. Um, intellectually, I understood things at a higher level than maybe, you know, they would see, maybe see the art and then I could sit there and explain it to them and they would like it more. Um, I went on to like think about that when I was at the academy and thinking like that is what I didn't want to happen anymore. I didn't want to have to have my my thoughts be more significant than what I was hanging on the wall. Mm -hmm. um, but back then, that's how I got into these programs. I was able to, to explain to them, look, I care. I care and I'm thinking about it and I'm not there yet, but, you know, give me a shot kind of thing. It's so just a very sports mentality. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there was a spark of confidence. Like it, it wasn't like you absolutely sure. thought you were completely talentless. Only at night. I Only at that. night. Yeah. So really, so yeah. what, so every morning something happened when you were sleeping that, that reset your brain. That's kind absolutely. of a gift. It's still that today. Really? It's, I wake up every morning, very positive, very much like write down, you know, all the things I want to learn all the things that I think I can accomplish. Then I go in and I go to the studio or I go out in nature and I get obliterated. And then I wake up the next morning thinking, well, today's different, you know? That's incredible. I think I can relate yeah. to that on a small level, but I've never heard it described quite like that. But I, I guess that when the sun's shining and you get up in the morning, it's a new day, you kind of feel like, okay, I'm gonna just tear it up today. And then reality yeah. hits. So I've felt that before. <laughs> <laughs> but you yeah. make it sound like this magical thing, like like you slept and someone blew fairy dust up your nose while you were sleeping, and then you woke up this super confident <laughs> artist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. All right, so, okay, so let's go jump ahead again back to college. So what did you end up doing? Did you end up going to PAFA? So I did. So I ended up, after I got rejected, I, I went and worked really hard and wrote that paper and um, talked to a bunch of people there and they, they got me in. They actually gave me a scholarship and because uh, financially it was very difficult for me at the time. And I got in and I was just like, went into that cast hall and it blew me away. Like just the fact I like, I remember walking through there and getting emotional because I was like, felt like I was in the presence of greatness where I never, before I never really had felt that. You know, like my favorite painters at the time were all from the academy, like, and now I'm there. And mm. so I would, you know, sit there and I just be amazed, work really hard, um, start to ask a lot of questions. And we got a group of people together that were like-minded students. 
and we all just worked. We just like we would sleep on the floor in the cast hall. They would let us stay there all night long, and we would go there and we'd like argue. And I was the worst one. I I I was talking to uh, somebody I went through the program with, and they were like, "Yeah, you were bad. You were really, you were really bad, but you cared more than anybody." And that was always like, you know, it was hard to hear, but it was like, okay, yeah, I remember that part of myself. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, so I got there and uh, I wanted to do abstract sculpture, um, but I wanted to learn the foundation before I went into sculpture. Hmm. Um, yeah. Man, I, I have got to see this cast hall because as you know, a lot of my guests have gone to Papa and they all talk about this cast hall. It seems like this incredible place. I've really got to check it out. But I want to yeah. I want to talk about this because this is how we became acquainted. And, sure. and that yeah. is that you sent me, which I got to tell you, it was re I really appreciated it. Yeah. Um, you sent me a really um, objective, kind critique of the podcast. <laughs> you know, you you, uh, you told me that you thought I wasn't giving Papa a fair shot in so many words because I had said some, I'd said a few things that um, might have come off or did come off a little bit harsh toward Papa, which I will say now, I certainly didn't intend that because I know nothing about Papa, right? Sure. But yeah, but explain a little bit about what your thoughts were, you know, because obviously I know, but to the audience, um, what your thoughts are about Papa and your experience there. But before you do that, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll go a little bit more into it. Um, a Please. few of the conversations I've had with past guests have been that Papa used to have a history of being all about the academics and all about drawing skills and painting skills, academic drawing and painting skills. And now a lot of it, a lot of the teachers are more modernist teachers. And so I think, uh, I had, uh, you had mentioned, I don't even remember saying it, but I'm sure I did. You had mentioned, I'd said that it's like there was a cancer growing in there or something. So, yeah. so I wanted you to address that and talk about what your experience was. Cause it was clearly very positive and, uh, yeah. I want to hear yeah. more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, and I appreciate like, oh, that dialogue and you coming and saying like, you were very honest and, and it made me, you know, how there's somebody, you know, and they love all of these bands that were influenced by this one core band. Yeah. And they're like, but I don't really. I don't really know that one core band. Uh, I don't think I like them. And you're like, well, you would love them. If you would just, if you would just let yourself like get to know them, you would maybe, you know, rather than their greatest hits or what they're currently doing, right. you might've loved what they did in the past. Um, so that's kind of how I felt. So I just wanted to reach out um, because I feel like with the Academy, I owe it a lot. Like I said, they took me in at high school and they were giving me paint for free canvases for free. They took me in as a high school, you know, nobody and for free taught me how to be not only an individual, but also to be an individual who strives to learn the fundamentals, which I wasn't connecting with before then. So when I got there, and this is why I, I wanted to talk to you about it, um, because when I got there, it was really difficult for the students and I to wrap our heads around 
doing something that was done so long ago and having it be relevant. And what they did was they took these people who were very ambitious for the modern names and were looking at post-war art and people coming out of the Expressionist era. And they were saying like, yes, that is good. We're not saying you're wrong. We're not saying you're bad, but we're gonna show you the fundamentals and we're gonna have teachers there who can handle your, whatever your static is or the, whatever the trend that you're going to, there's gonna be somebody who can help you there. But we also have these individuals who know the, the basics and they're really good at it. They're really good at teaching it. Like I went to this the, during the same time as Carlo Russo. He was in the same grade as I was. And he was doing something completely different than a lot of students. And he found a teacher to just kind of focus on what he was into and taught him, he's a very, very accomplished still life painter. Where me, I, I gravitated to, uh, towards Sidney Goodman, who was a figurative, uh, more modern painter. And, but we both had the same fundamentals, but we could split on our second year and start to learn more about what we thought we wanted to be. Hmm. Um, so it was, and it, I mean, they were not t taking you into the cast hall and saying like, you know, here's, here's the David, you know, do whatever you want with it. They're like, no, break it all down. This is the technique you're going to use. This is how you're going to learn how to do it. If it's not right, they would come in and erase it off your, I remember, um, I, I had a teacher when I was there and I was drawing and I was trying this technique. You're supposed to do these little delicate circles and build it up very slowly. No lines, no outline, nothing like that. And I just wanted like a little mark to show me where the nose was. And he was furious because he's like, if you knew the actual volumetric scale and all proportions, you wouldn't need that line. That line is, that's, that's your coward line. And I was just like, oh my, <laughs> like, give me a break. You know, I'm, I'm just learning this stuff. But they were so brutal because, because they know and you got two years. You got two years and then they're going to switch. Then you go into your studio and you have to make art. So they really pushed you. They really push you hard. And I think that's what get lo gets lost because a lot of people are like, well, I'm gonna avoid that. I'm gonna avoid that when I go there and I'm just gonna do my thing or they'll gravitate towards certain professor and they won't maybe go in as deep. And so you can get the imbalance of more modernism with, with no structure. But at the time that I went there, it was not that. Um, hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've been teaching for 20 years and I'll tell you what, if like if, if my school came up on a podcast in a negative light and I had a student back me up the way you're backing them up, I would be unbelievably <laughs> grateful. They're, seriously, it's really cool the loyalty that you have for your school. Um, but yeah, I like, owe it a lot. Yeah, it sounds like you're it sounds like that. And it sounds like it was really good for you. And I am I really do want to visit and check it out because it keeps coming up. I mean, they must have something special there because a lot of my guests have gone there and it keeps coming up. So yeah, I'm glad you had yeah. a good experience there. Yeah, I, I would love to next time I'm not far from there. So next time uh, you're in town, I, I would love to show you. And also Scott, I don't know if you know the painter Scott Noel. No, I don't. Are you familiar? Look him up. He he's exceptional. He he really is one of the. I mean, man, he is the most underrated painter teacher I think living today. I think people are going to look back on him as being a force. Um, 
he's probably the person that most students go for there now. Um, mm. going to, you know, and they they kind of take on him and uh, become sort of like him. He's very influential. You'll start to see uh, once you see his work, you'll start to see his influence. And he is all from life. He really? is color theory that you would like his temperature control with developing his his paintings are incredible. Uh, and you have to see them in person. They're painted almost like um, cake frosting. Um, and he will let you, you know, find yourself. Is this his work? Like, that's his work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and yeah, he'll do these things like, you know, in a, a sitting sometimes. The, the, the paint is so fresh and he like believes in kind of working it all in one layer, but he, he's all about volume, like understanding conceptually when you're painting this person, knowing the weight of the head or how the skin is stretched along the belly and how like these forms, these cylinders in space, how they sit. And he was teaching me, uh, I would have Sidney Goodman on my right side and Scott on my left. And Scott would be saying, you know, get the volume, like find where they are in space. Don't just try to create an illusion of space. Know that space. Like what is the depth that you're trying to create? Know it and then go and build it. And then mm. had Sidney Goodman on the other side, who is this, I don't know if you know Sidney Goodman's work. He passed away, but he was, he would come in and he would say, this is boring. Take yellow paint with this thumb and put it across my paint and say, now at least it's interesting. <laughs> and, you know, it's like those these two people, like who were like fighting for me to like learn like this really in-depth, critical understanding. And then this other person who was like, yeah, but what does that, what does that matter if it's boring? And so that was kind of, after my second year, that was kind of like what I was thinking about. And Scott has a lot to do with that. Um, and I feel like a lot of people have written him to the side because his color is so vivid and it's so strong that it doesn't have the contrast that maybe a lot of more classically trained artists will uh, go very dark. He will like push the chroma and key it up and kind of find, try to find fluctuations in tonality that are minimal compared to the fluctuations in the 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 color itself um which was like for me that was like oh that's all i want to do so i was so wrapped up in color theory um mm. and so he's the last kind of person really teaching that i think yeah so i went to the university of utah and one thing um yeah. it was a when i was there it was turning into a pretty modernist program but i had one teacher her name was Marino Harrior, and she she wasn't an academic at all, but she seemed similar to your oh, the teacher who put the yellow paint. Remind me of the name, Sydney Goodman. Yeah, Sydney Goodman. Where yeah. she would challenge my aesthetic and say, "Look, quit showing off." Yeah, I know you can paint a portrait. Yeah. We know you can make it look like the person. And that's what I would do. Because I, I felt like, oh, look what I can do, everybody. You know, I can make it look like something. Sure. And she'd say, but we know you can paint a portrait. But what makes a portrait more than a portrait? Honestly, that one phrase was probably more 
meaningful to me than the rest of the four years. Yeah. How is a portrait more than a portrait? What are you going to do to make it more than just a picture of something? That's great. And it reminds me of a little bit of your, the contrast that you had to one guy telling you, you know, find the form and another guy saying, smear yellow paint across it, make it interesting. It's not just about form. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, It was a, it was really, it was really great for me um, to have them. And I mean, like they were like Scott to just kind of explain to you how Scott is. Scott came into my studio and I was working so hard and I was using the worst paint and I was just struggling. And Scott came in and to my studio and bought one of my paintings just so I could afford better paint. What? Like, yeah, like, and, and um, like, I'm just like, you know, and he paid a lot of money for it. And he's just a teacher there. He probably doesn't make a lot of money. He is, you know, in my opinion, under collected. And uh, he comes in and just, he, he, you know, that that to me is why I stand up so much for him. Um, because he really cares about these people, these students. Um, well, and his work is and, beautiful. And one of my favorite artists was has always been Wayne Tebow. And there's kind of a, oh, a yes, similar aesthetic yeah. that Scott Noel has that I find really interesting. I wonder if yeah. he's influenced it's, by Wayne Tebow. Has he ever brought him up? Oh, I'm sure he is. I mean, he's, you know, if you can get him to stop talking about Degas, he, he might get there. But Oh, I see that a, too. I see that too. Yeah, he loves, like, the way he talks about Degas, uh, you know, I wish my wife would talk about me that way, you know? <laughs> it, 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 it's, That's funny. But I get it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, thanks uh, Thanks for giving us all that uh, information yeah. about Papa. That's That's great. So one thing I also want to point out, about that message that you sent me is I had no idea who you were. Maybe I already mentioned this. I'd never seen your work before. And as is often the case when someone messages me, particularly when they're not asking to be on the show, because sometimes people mention me are like, hey, I'd love to be on the show. But you yeah. didn't do that. You just were like, hey, you should really give Papa a second chance. They're like, great school. I love them, blah, blah. And then I looked up your work and was floored. I was just, yeah, I was like, well, don't tell me, come on the podcast because your work is amazing. I'd love to talk about you and your work as well. So let's do that. Let's at this point start talking about your work. First of all, I'd like to know what you're sitting in front of. That is huge. Yeah. So that's a 10 by 12 foot. Um, It's a cityscape that I've been working on for over 10 years Um, that started uh, when I was living in Washington, D.C., and I've been doing a project off and on there, uh, mostly on site um, of these large cityscapes. And this is one of them that's uh, attached to the wall until I can get back there and uh, get back on site and kind of take some more note. Ten years? Yeah. Well, obviously not straight through. Obviously, it's sitting there for probably months or even years at a time, I would assume. Oh, yeah. Well, the pandemic forced me to kind of rethink and re kind of calibrate because I couldn't get there. A lot of the buildings that I used to get on top of, um, they weren't letting anybody in. Um, so for a plein air painter, uh, working this size, you really have to kind of rethink how you structure a painting, um, to still have it happen, you know, 
because I'll, I also working this big, working from photographs just doesn't translate. Um, so I tried to do it from sketches. And so I just built up this kind of all these little parts and pieces over the past 10 years and just, you know, like not really caring where it ends up, but just knowing that this is something I've always wanted to do. I'm doing it with several other large pieces. Um, Wait, so, this so you're is, yeah, not using any of... photography for this at all? So I do have photography for the placement of uh, like right on the edge of the building. Okay. But most of it is from a ge a geographical perspective maps that I use, that I drew out. And then I would use, uh, you know, like the, um, have you ever seen the painting show, The American Sublime? No. Uh, the painters from uh, early American landscape painters. Mm -mm. They would come over here from Europe and they would basically take all these sketches and blow them up and, and re-establish uh, the picture plane and do these kind of masterpieces where they take all these pieces and parts and make this big painting. Well, this is kind of what I thought about. I thought, like, I want to really make, like, a painting that they would have made back then, but using kind of the skills that I'm developing and the, and the thoughts that I have towards the landscape and kind of rebuild it up. And so everything is very much, uh, like, the tones are very light. And the reason why I do that is I draw on top of everything uh, and with measurements, mathematical measurements based on this map. And then if it's light enough, I can move these blobs of color um, pretty and still have the vibrancy of color. So as soon as you get dark, you stop the light from being able to go into the paint and come back out at a certain frequency. So you kind of deaden the space. So everything has to be high key. But how do you differentiate these shapes in order to create the composition? And it's all cool and warm and having these like, slight transitions um, and sometimes really big transitions of color in order to like map it out. And then you go back in with a pencil, draw your grid lines, which is just a cross grid. And then off of that, you start to find your perspective map and you start to kind of understand the space again. And then you go in and you ask yourself a question, like what would this color be doing if this color was next to it? And you make a guess. And then you can get back out in nature you go back and you have all these questions and you kind of, I will even answer them on the actual canvas. Like this needs to be cooler. This needs to be warmer. Like the bricks are actually more brown than they are purple. Like, and basically grade it like it's a paper. Take it back to the studio, go in, fix all these things up, and then, you know, let it sit there, ask the questions again, go back in and keep building it. That's how this one kind of goes. Um, so this perspective map, I haven't heard that yeah. phrase before. You've said a lot of things I haven't heard of before. You really educated me today. So is that just a linear perspective drawing that you're talking about? So basically it's a measurement based on, so say uh, from one building, from the floor to the ground of the building, say that's a one. Now you're in sight size, that one, and then would then translate to larger on this, because if you were going to do it size size, this would be a much smaller painting. So I take that one and I'd say, okay, everything that's a one is going to be a 10, right? So you take that one measurement and you blow it up to a 10 so that it's a different size when you put it down in the map. So that's now your formula. A one is a 10. So then, you know, a 
uh, a 10 would be a 20, right? Everything is going up or, you know, it would multiply by whatever multiply uh, multiple that you were doing in that. So I'll go in and everything, all the information from a small drawing will then get blown up. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're site sizing and then scaling it up. And then scaling it up. And what you're supposed to do after you do that scale up is then you, you can go into Google Maps and you find out actually like the distances that you're that you're looking at. And you can find these, you know, topographical maps, especially in the city, of where you're looking, and then you can see how things diminish in space. So say it's a one here, but as it goes back a mile, it'll be a half. Right? So then you know from where you're looking at it to a mile, it's shrinking in size by that much. Right? So then you have an equation, a mathematical equation for that line of distance. That's how much it's diminishing in space. So then you kind of know, well, if this building that is, you know, say 100 feet is now coming in, you know, down to 75 feet within a few blocks, like that's my rate of how it diminishes. So then you can kind of see the scale of what you're looking at. So you're not just looking at the space as in some like question thing. You can actually know like, okay, all the way behind there to that building back there, that's actually 50 miles back. So I know now how it's diminishing. There's not a small building that's really close to me. It's a big building very far away. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. So you're site sizing then obviously loosely because you're because you're coming back and establishing more concrete proportions using math yeah using mathematics and also using uh how things diminish in space so those those perspectives um those things that that's that's when you're in the studio that's all you have to go by right because even in a camera it's all it, it's not going to be how you see it right so there's all these ways of trying to get it to feel like it feels when you stand out there on this roof. And that's what I'm trying to go after. How, what does it feel like for me optically with these two eyes coming out and my brain making this one vision, what is happening here? How can we go in it and dissect it volumetrically? And not just the illusion, how do I create the illusion of the building, but how do I understand the fundamentals of where that building is in the space that I'm trying to recreate now in my studio. Okay, so here's something that w would occur to me if I was doing this, and, I, and I'm sure it's occurred to you, but I wonder how you handle it. So technically speaking, nothing is horizontal and vertical. It's all curves, right? right? So if you're right. standing on the edge of that building behind you, let's say that was your point of view, right on the edge of that building behind you, obviously it's not, it's f further forward, but Right. then technically all these measurements, all these ratios are going to be on radiuses from your eye outward. Yeah. Right. But it doesn't appear yeah. that's yes. what you're doing. So it looks like you're going more horizontals and verticals instead of circular. I'm glad you said that. That's, so that's a very, like that when you get in deep, that's what you should start to see is these things when you're measuring them, they're curving, right? So because the distance as it goes away, Especially if you're, I'll, I'll pull off a grid sometimes, I'll build a big grid. Right. And when I pull off the grid, there's all these warping elements that start happening. So I thought to myself, and some of my paintings have that warp, right? Because it's true to the, how you're pulling it off the grid. 
So you are working off of radiuses. You're not going straight back. You're working off of radiuses. So I started to work it off of a radius. And then what happened was it didn't feel real. It felt like a depiction because it didn't feel how you actually saw it, which is counterintuitive. But what I realized is when you start working really big, your eye does that naturally with the painting. Ah. So So it was kind of doubling the distortion. So you did yeah. it accurately, but then you also distorted it because it's big and interesting. Yeah. So then I was like, that was my aha moment. So I started fixing all the math and stopping all that from happening and started to, to now recalibrate it. Um, and so once I did that, it started to warp in my vision because it's so large and it felt like that. That so, is um, awesome. Yeah. That yeah. is awesome. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. 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 So technically though, if it's it, technically, I mean, this is now we're just nerding out here, but if it's, yeah. if it's in a big enough gallery and you're standing far enough back, then it's all going to flatten out again. But, but yeah, right. But you're imagining it in a room where you can't stand so far back that the whole thing flattens back out. Yeah. So my, everything perspective driven for me is trying to recreate where I'm actually standing in that space in, in conjunction to the painting itself. Like almost like the painting is an open door. And right, so, right. You know, I've had shows before where I would tell people where to stand to look at it. I was that obsessed with the perspective being correct. Um, and I only do, I would only do shows at uh, places of science or uh, conserve like places where like I did a show in Acadia National Park instead of doing it at a gallery. I actually had um, it done in the park itself um, at one of the research facilities they gave they let me do the show there so that i could do lectures on on the science of the place and the mathematics and we could like everybody could nerd out on these things and it was like the greatest experience so um oh man those kinds of things a lot to me yeah oh man if you live closer i'd be i'd be nerding out with you all the time this stuff i love this (laughs) stuff seriously um all right well let's look at some of your other works and you mentioned that you draw on top of your perspective drawing and ask yourself questions and stuff. But in, but I noticed you also use the line in a very artistic way, drawing on top of your painting. So I'm going to, let's start with this still life right here where you've yeah. kind of outlined different parts of the anatomy with graphite on top of paint. That's one of the things that I found so interesting about your work. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and what motivates that decision. Yeah, so uh, a lot of times when I'm painting, I don't think of the painting as a product whatsoever. I think about it as a question that needs to be answered. So when I go into it, the element of finish is never really coming into uh, my, my thought. So it's always, asking this question and then finding the answer and putting it down. Uh, what I, I started to realize with painters like you and you glow, I don't know if you know. Yeah. I work. wondered if you were influenced by him. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, uh, Antonio Lopez, yeah. they, they all, when you get up to the work, they're all asking these really intense questions. Um, and they're all in pencil because the great thing about pencil is you can get really thin and you can hatch and your hatch can have symbolism in it. And all of this is all symbolic to me. I can read the information so uh, off of it with just very slight lines. 
So you'll have a pencil mark. I'll paint it, just no pencil, just paint it. And then when it tries, I'll go back in and redraw on top of it with pencil. One hatch is, a, is this is where I think this uh, measurement is. Then if I can reaffirm that and say, I checked it again and it is there, it gets another hatch. So now I know two hatches is I checked it and then I confirmed it. And so you'll see in all these paintings, there's all these hatches. And sometimes they're purely measurements. Sometimes they're just trying to describe how the, I want the brush to move. Sometimes it's like just trying to uh, understand a proportional element that maybe I thought was wrong. But if you go in, it's really describing um, kind of the geography of the form on yeah. top of the paint itself. And this is a very small painting. Um, I think it's only about like eight by 10 inches. Um, and it's done like a mound of paint uh, that is then drawn and then painted over and then drawn and then painted over. But uh, trying to get the information in, pencil is just such a useful tool. Yeah, man, it, it also adds such a really beautiful aesthetic element. It's interesting how you speak about it like a scientist almost or an engineer but then the results are very artistic you know and that leads to a thought i often tell my students is i don't see and you said your dad was an engineer i don't personally i don't see a difference much of a difference between art and science i think no, art is a science yeah. more than it is some kind of frou-frou creative endeavor i mean it is creative of course but i feel like it should be about questions and answers and exploration yeah so one of the things that i did when i got out of uh the academy is i actually started lecturing to uh at universities um at their science department to get them interested and their science students interested in art and trying to bridge the gap so like at drexel i did um one of uh, a large lecture series on uh, quantum physics as it relates to art. And I went in and, and described Newtonian physics, quantum physics, the separation there uh, as kind of same kinds of thoughts of traditional and modern art and go into all of this idea of having a concept and it, and then trying to make that concept like, you know, Isaac Newton, when he was trying to think of things like gravity, these are all conceptual things. Like you have to have a rich understanding to think of these theoretical, you know, answers to, to problems. Uh, same thing goes with artists. We do that every day. We come in and we're trying to think of like, how does this world work? Like, how do I recreate this thing? Uh, you know, it's, it's the same, it's the same. The, the muscles that we use, if we um, like so, the same as the ones we use in science, it's free in a way. Yeah, you know? I've read a lot of books on the theory of relativity. And yeah. that's one of my favorite topics because it seems so science fiction and yet isn't. It's just so fascinating. But yeah. I've often thought that Einstein would have made an incredible artist because to be able to visualize because all these, for him, all these experiments were thought experiments. There was no way to prove it in his day. No, no clear, exactly. definitive yeah. way to prove it. 
And now we have satellites and GPS and all that where they actually have to use this theory in order to make the clocks work, blah, blah, blah. But then it was like all thought experiments. And he had to visualize yeah. things that even after I've read books and books and books on it, I still struggle to visualize. And I think what an incredibly artistic gift that is to be able to visualize such complex concepts. I, that's again, yeah, that's like you that. said, I think they're so related. I wonder what kind of art he would have made if he was an artist. I think, yeah, I mean, I think th there are going to be artists, I think in the next 10 to 20 years that are doing that. I think, I think the, the trajectory of art, I have a very positive view on how people are starting to look at the possibilities of art making. Mm -hmm. And I think that the next Einstein will be also doing art. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's look at some of your other work here, man. This piece is one of my favorites. Oh, I, I mean, I love that. figurative work, but what, what really appeals to me in this is your, I know this sounds maybe a little bit corny and cliche, but your guts and bravery to leave so much unfinished, but in not in, yeah. um, a lot of, a lot of all prima painters do unfinished work where they have, they start with a blank canvas. They get a lot of drips and, and slippery paint and push it all around. And then they form a face into it, which is beautiful and great, but something different right. about this, this feels more gritty, uh, almost. I don't want to say more intentional because obviously I can't know the intentions of any artist, but there's something uh, finished, more finished about the unfinished. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah, they, so the story behind this painting is actually, so I was so poor. This is, was done at the academy during my third year there, and I was so poor that I was dumpster diving at the school to find canvases that people didn't want anymore. Oh my God. Then I would take those canvases and paint over them with a white layer and then use them as canvases. And this thing was so beat up. This, this, uh, and it was really nice linen. So I took it down, I sanded it, I, I, I reprimed it, I brought it back, and then I just started, I was like, you know, it was this beautiful surface that was. Uh, I just kept put laying into, and then I would paint white over it again, and I would just keep using it. And then one day, I had um, a friend of mine over, and uh, she uh, she was looking at the work. I was like, you know, if you ever need a model, you know, I, I, I'm I'm willing. I was like, let's go, let's do it right now. Let's set it up, and we started. And it was session. I think it was like an eight hour session where this was start to finish. And it was all, she later became my wife, but no it way. Was all this, yeah. Like <laughs> your story could not be more interesting. I swear. <laughs> it's wild. And we actually decided to, to start dating. She met me in Paris when I was over there. It's like this whole, it, oh my it's, it's gosh. A wild but, um, so she, she, uh, was from out of town. She's like, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. And I was like, I'm only going to have her for a day. So let's go in. And I was working on this theory at the time that was based on focus, right? So if you're looking at a bottle and it says San Pellegrino, right? And the top of the bottle, you, you stare at the cap, 
you can't read Sam Pellerino at the bottom, right? Because your focus is on the cap, right? So everything blurs. And we never really noticed that when we were looking at things. But in pa making paintings, I started to realize, like, there's an actual focus and then a diffusion that happens within anything you're looking at. So I thought, okay, I want to do that in this painting. So I focused on the, the, the sock to the knee up to the pelvis area. And that was like my focus and everything else would kind of fluctuate and move around uh, besides that one point. And that would be the anchor. So she doesn't feel like she's gonna float off of the bed. I would anchor it to this, to this foot. And that was, that was the theory that I ended up working on for a few months that year. But that's what this painting ended up being about. But so that was the intent. So I think the reason why it has a, a level of finish and intent is because there was a conceptual intent that was achieved within that one mm. spot. So tell me about this one. Is this someone that you know? So yeah, actually from the painting before, um, her and I had a child, this is Leaf, this is my son was just born about 11 months ago. And I had set it up because I knew I wanted to make art about this moment um, because I was starting to feel like I needed to tell a very specific story, um, which I hadn't felt before. And when he came, I was trying to connect. And I, I think because I had already gotten funding for the project and I knew how how deep I was feeling about everything that when he came, I couldn't connect to him. Um, it was very strange. And I almost felt like, oh no, like I, I want to like see him uh, like whole. And it was in the first few months and we were exhausted and we were going through, you know, all this beautiful, all these beautiful moments, all these hard moments. And there was this one day when I was changing him this is his changing table. And the light kind of hit him. And I saw his personality or kind of what I would say is his consciousness come in. And it was like, almost like he was illuminated by, like he went from being, like his doctor says, he was in the blob phase to now downloading the software. And this painting, I wanted to really show that moment. So I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. Like I see him kind of being uh, enveloped in light and, and coming to life. And the relationship was getting rich. And I, I wanted to kind of portray that in this painting. Uh, so I started to do these drawings, put him in that light. And then I started to blow up the drawing, same way I did the landscape. And then I started to study and measure his uh, actual um, head and how it related to his torso and what were the unique things about, because I had never done a child before. Um, how the leg proportions were and whether I was going to do that to his actual size, which it was 24 inches at the time, or whether I was going to actually do it bigger like Carvaggio would do and make it like feel larger because the moment was larger. So I was coming up with all these mathematical sequences to tell the story. Then uh, I wanted to also have like the split in chroma where it's like cool, warm is really playing so even though it's a very dark, I wanted the light to still feel drastic, but I didn't want to do that by just adding like a heavy darkness and losing all the, like the curve of the belly was really important. Uh, mm. So 
that was kind of so I those all those things were really important. And then the curve, everything, it kind of had it almost feel off balanced. Um, it, so all that kind of played in. And then I would go back and take little notes while I was hanging out with them and, and put them in. You know, every time I would change them, I'd take a second and like re move his arm because what would happen is his arm kept moving and it was casting a shadow over his face. So like, it's like, okay, so what is the exact angle where he can move his arm? So the shadow would be like right where I wanted it to be. And so we would just play and he loved it. It was like his favorite <laughs> time and just like play in the light. And uh, so this is what the, that's how that painting actually um, was developed. So this was just a mod podge of a bunch of different drawings from a bunch of different times changing him on his changing table? Yeah, and actually different orientations of the space uh, and different. Uh, so the actual, the painting was actually developed um, actually as if it was head to toe. So as if he was like standing up uh, instead of on his side. So I actually really? painted it. Yeah, but it didn't feel how I saw, like I saw him as I was leaning over him, changing him. Um, so that was kind of, I then I rechanged that and I would move the vase back and then I changed the table. And then the angle of the table is very strange in perspective because I wanted to kind of be flipping down as your perspective changed. Um, and then I kind of had this dead space and there's a diaper, um, there's this diaper, um, package at the bottom that's like killing the space in a really weird way um so it's all these plays um that was kind of playing with the idea of like the uh almost like everything coming into focus i wanted everything to be feeling like it was falling but at the same time like anchored so it's this contradiction um and the split of light and dark it's all these kind of strange contradictions happening in the painting that I felt like if I could anchor it, it would really say something compositionally. Um, and then I did a painting outside of it representing uh, the dimming of the light, like the birth and death idea. So uh, taking the light that it was, which was 4.15 in the afternoon in the winter, and then the dimming of that coming in at five o'clock and the little bit of light that's still left is the background of the painting. So taking the two transitions of the light, and I could get that Wait, light. wait, 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 I don't understand. Can you can you try that one one yeah. more time? <laughs> yeah, so so in the painting, Leaf is on a chain, changing table and there's a light coming through a window. Right, right. That, that light is specifically comes in at 415 at that angle. Okay, this light so, here, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So right after that, yeah. So right after that light moves from him, it it changes to a five o'clock. Oh, light. are you saying that jump from that jump to that jump? From yeah. here to here. So so no. So so that whole light in that painting, that light is four fifteen. But if you take outside, see that it's a square within a square. Do you see what I'm saying? If you keep going down, bring the mouse down a little bit further. Uh, See how there's like a window out if you keep going down. Yeah, man. I'm sorry. Oh, this square here you're right talking there. about? Yeah, that square. Oh. Okay. 
So there's a square and a square, and the the light changes from the square to the square. Wait, I know so, that's very strange. So the so the these shapes behind behind the center panel, the center square, are the same image, just in a different lighting. So it's actually out the window that is reflecting off of the side wall at the same time, uh, but further in the future so if you oh, think of interesting it's kind of hard to explain but i wanted to show like kind of time and how the light temperature changes just that slightly because in that moment of right before like the the sun sets and that twilight light it's very fascinating to me because so much happens if you're watching like if you're a landscape painter like the light changes super subtly but then all of a sudden it does this kind of show towards the end which is the sunset and it's that transition i wanted to have the before and after sunset light in this one painting so this was kind of the concept that i came oh. up with it to kind of create a feel i don't know if it accomplished that so much as it was like interesting for me to kind of deal with that and give it a little bit of a framework that wasn't just one singular painting um, but it was more two ideas on one and to deal with time in that yeah way other manufactured but it was a start to an idea i like the idea you know i'm all one of my i don't i'm gonna say pet peeves but i don't know if i go quite that far but is where and you kind of touched on this earlier is where the work doesn't stand on its own and you have to describe it in order to make it stand on its own but what's really great right. about your work is it stands on its own but then when you talk about it it just you know picks it up even more <laughs> like it makes it even that much more interesting. So yeah, if you this was in a gallery, having a nice description of what you're doing would be pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah I like that concept. That's really cool. So I'm still totally stumped on how you could possibly put this together without just sitting there and painting him. And then even if you're doing that with him moving all around, so just to make sure I understand this correctly, you were working from multiple sketches on multiple days and just Frankensteining him together with yeah. no photo reference. No, there are photo references, oh, okay. um, but the photo references are used. So, so when you're using a photo reference, what tends to happen is you can't get the color to quite work on the form and the perspective is always very, uh, it feels so much like a camera that it's almost like you're referencing a, a photograph so much that it feels like a snapshot. Like, so it kills all movement. So you use, like, the way Aikens would kind of use photography. You can use it um, to kind of come up with structural things. But at the end of it, you're really, you're going to have a lot of problems. So I always do this. So I set up, I'll take photographs of what I think I want to paint if it's something I can't paint from life. I'll take them, I'll put them on the computer and I'll look at them. And I'll just, usually I'll look at them on my phone and I'll kind of think about the things that are limiting and what's the difference between that and how it felt. How would I paint it if I was there? And what's the difference here? And then I'll write all that down. For this very specifically, as I couldn't have the contrast be a photographic contrast. Like it would no. dead the color. No, so the darks that, would be that, way too dark. 
The yeah, light. and there would yeah. be all these extra shadows and like all the light that was coming off wouldn't wouldn't feel like there was air in it. And all these paintings that I'm doing, I need to have that element of feeling like there's almost like this bluish air in between you and 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 the uh, the model or the landscape or whatever it is. So you take those photographs, you kind of answer all those questions, and then you go in and you try to fix all those elements. And then you bring it back into the studio. Once you have the structure of the drawing, the color is truly, because your eyes adjust so much to color so many times, you can use color theory to figure it out. Right. I could go in there and say, you know, I know what it's going to do if it's in light. I know what type of light it is. I know what the color is. I'll take, I'll take time and... There's actually a, a, a painting um, that's of a bust. And around the bust is all these little marks of color. And they're from me going in and taking my palette and mixing the color on these little uh, strips and putting that color down and holding it up to the object and seeing if I can color match exactly what that color is. So I'll just go in. Like if, if I'm doing it from a reference, I'll go in and I'll just do, I have my studios full of thousands of these where I'm mixing colors out in nature just to see what that color is as it translates to oil, translates to oil paint. Um, so that's what these are. So I'll go and do that and find all the temperature changes, not exactly what the light is and how it changes from 415 to you know 445 and, and take all those notes. So you can come in and pretty much recreate that painting. I just love how scientific your approach is to this. So what did you do with this painting of your son and your wife? You still own these? So all of these are my personal collection. Okay. Yeah, okay. all these paintings are the ones that... So, you know, th these are all like personal little... Um, they're, they're very different and they're not exactly what I'm doing um, today, but there are things that I lived with and... Uh, they're very intimately about my life mm -hmm. currently as well. So this is just, uh, we live on an old farm that has 135 acres around us. There's a large barn studio there um, that was taken over by the raccoons. So I actually have a second studio. Um, but uh, just setting up plein air uh, and just going out and painting these, uh, these kind of landscapes um, just in our backyard, I, I think I spent about three years just, that's all I did, was just wake up, go outside, and make these paintings. Wow. Man, you even and have the line, even have line around the clouds, the pencil line. Yeah. It's really... Yeah, so a lot of times when things are moving, too, like, if, if, you're, uh, if you're trying to, like, stop something, like, you can make a little mark, and it'll kind of indent the surface of the paintings. I, I really very rarely take photographs of the work because it's very difficult for me emotionally, if I could put it that way, to take a picture of a painting that I've worked so hard to create a surface on. Because it's, I know so many more people are going to see the painting as a photo than oh, they are as an how I feel too. And you work so hard and you put so much love into the surface. Um, so anyway, that being said, um, the surface here is what it's all kind of about. It's all the information is there. So if 
you know, there's pencil marks and, and, and there's a grid because I hang these plumb lines. And on Instagram, you can kind of see an example of it. But I set up um, plumb weights and uh, all these different floating grids to pull the space off of. And that's what all those lines are. They're strings out in nature um, that I set up on a gridded post. And then I pull my uh, information from that grid. I don't yeah. know if you've ever seen that. Yeah, um, I have seen that done. Yeah, it's um, Antonio Lopez. I saw a video yes. of him doing that. Yeah, Lopez Garcia, Antonio Lopez Garcia. Yeah, it's yeah. an interesting process. It's kind of labor intensive. You got to set that up every time you go out and paint. What, what do you uh, see? Well, it's my property. Oh, so you just leave it out there. So I'll leave it out there, but you have to be able to mark off. Uh, so you mark off your feet and then you mark off on the ropes where the ropes are, because what will happen is they'll start to sag a little bit. Right. And so your actual your grid will change. So you're constantly moving the string up, up on a ladder. It really is. It, I mean, I use it to listen to music. I'll listen to music and just spend an hour setting up the grid every morning. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if the lights at one o'clock, then, you know, you go out there early, you, you listen to music. It's like a meditative thing. Um, and then you go back off and you pull the reference off of it. So what do you see as the advantage? Cause this, this is relatively easy to draw. So what do you see as the advantage of the grid in something relatively simple like this? So the advantage of the grid really is to sit there and work on finding the things that you skip when you're confident. So the grid helps you to find, like my biggest problem when I was painting without grid is my brain would tell me that bush is much closer closer to the tree than it actually is. And once I would grid it out, I'd say, oh no, it, it's it's actually quite a big difference. It's getting squeezed in because of the way I'm craning my neck. Memory is a large part of painting. Mm -hmm. When you look at something, you, you don't just look and paint. Like there is a moment when you take your eye away and you put to the canvas. This helps you to completely take that away because you're grabbing a caliper that information is there and then it goes straight to the canvas mm -hmm. so you take all your what you think or what you remember out of it it's what it actually is off of here you're not gonna which can be debilitating because you start to lose that part of your brain so after using the grid for a long time i would find myself weaker and making judgments sometimes even though my paintings were much more accurate hmm. because you weren't finding the shapes actually fit with memory re remembering exactly like from looking hold it bring it to the canvas put it down what happened there if your brain isn't strong enough to hold that information that period of time then you're going to it's going to get all strange when it gets to the canvas so what do you do to manage that? Do you do you kind of alternate sometimes grid, sometimes not grid? Um, I'll use grid. Mostly I'll use grid on something that uh, I feel like I can't get those relationships right right away. Mm -hmm. If I can't do a quick, uh, then I'll go, okay, we need to set up grid. But most of the times I'm painting on sites where you can't use a grid anymore. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, I'll you know, that will allow me to just go 
you know, and I will still use calipers and I'll still put, you know, you use a piece of wood that's about arm length because your arm changes. So you use that piece of wood. Antonio Lopez uses the same thing. So you can pull it off from the same distance from your cheekbone out to perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll use that. But mostly right now, I'm just trying to get better at kind of seeing it, holding it. Uh, do you know the painter Aaron Thompson? Mm-mm. Man, you are hitting a lot You're of names I'm having... not familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a rich community um, of painters who are like obsessed with perspective. Mm-hmm. And he's great. He's great. He actually teaches at the Pennsylvania College of Art and Design and just put in a show. Um, I, I actually did the had a piece in the show with him um, at that college all about it's called in-depth. It's all about painters trying to find space and perspective and dealing with these issues. But we were just talking about how important it is to keep that muscle of memorization, of memorizing the space holding it and then putting it down like that muscle. You need to train that. doesn't matter how good you are. Mm-hmm. If you stop using it, you, especially if you start to use only photo references, you weaken that part of yourself and the confidence to do like more like luscious marks and, 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 and to move things and to, to, to work kind of sporadically goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're so afraid of losing a measurement because you might not get it back because you're, you know, so hung up on trying to get this idea of perfect, which, which it will never be. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. So uh, let me see. So why is it that all of these are from your own collection? Where is the work that you're selling where right now? And where are you selling your work? So I have a really unique situation business-wise. So when I was at the academy, the academy has a very competitive system. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have about two years of, of studying. And then on your third year, you get a studio and you compete. Um, and at the it sounds strange, but at the end, you have all these prizes that you could win. And people come in. And they actually, they have a preview that's notorious for wealthy older patrons, patrons running up the stairs and falling over each other to try to get to this work before everybody else can uh, to buy it. It's really strange. But it was something that they didn't in my third year. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to start off right. Usually in your third and fourth year, the biggest prize you can win is a trip to Europe or it's it's called the World Travel Scholarship. And I just, I had this idea that I was gonna do nightscapes and I would go to school all day and then I'd work all night. Mm-hmm. And I would, uh, I actually, um, they were building their new building and I would break onto the top of their old building and do these large landscapes at night from on site, tied to these uh, HVAC systems. At the top, I would tie a belt around myself on the scaffolding and do these large paintings. I ended up not sleeping for a long time, and uh, I, I actually like went into some weird sleep deprivation, uh, sleep sleep deprived at that time. And so, at the end of the year, they actually hung uh, my friends uh, actually hung my wall for me because they had to take me to the hospital. Wow! Uh, because I had 
honestly, I was hanging and I lost, I lost my mind. It, it was like the weirdest thing. Like you need to sleep. And, but I just so wanted to be making this art and have it be, it was my first like showing the public and they ended up hanging it for me. And I ended up actually winning one of the world travel scholarships. Wow. Congrats. Uh, and it was, um, I think partially helped by the fact that I went insane and a lot of people heard about that. <laughs> and it, at the speak, all of a sudden people were like, oh, did you hear about that guy? He literally lost his mind uh, doing painting. Um, and so while I was recovering, I found out I also got all these messages from art brokers from all over. And they were saying, and art dealers, and one of the biggest galleries offered me a show on the spot um, to come out in my third year and do this show of night paintings and i was just so mentally not there that i was like i'm sorry i just this was really hard on me though i turned everything down and what ended up happening is i grew this relationship with these people who really cared about me and believed in what i was doing and they uh my third year when i came back uh i went to europe and um did all this incredible stuff and i came back and I said, this is what I need to do. I need to make art. I don't want to, I don't want to have a gallery show. I don't want to do shows until I'm 40 years old. I want to just make art because I don't know who I am and I don't want to be forced to make those calls yet. And uh, I was talking to uh, an older artist friend of mine who said, you when you're 40, you know. So I just said 40. Um, and they said, well, what do you want to do? How are you going to make money? And I said, I'm just going to explain to everybody who wants to buy a painting what I'm doing. And I started to find these collectors who knew about me from these art brokers who said, like, this guy's doing something different. He doesn't want to do gallery shows. He doesn't. And I also had a rule that I will not sell my, my best painting. I will sell. You have to, if you want to buy a painting, you have to buy 20 paintings, the whole series. You have to buy all my failures. You have to buy all of like the good and the bad, the whole set. Uh, I'll give you a deal on the price and I'm going to do that because I want to get better. And I'm going to do them all from life from start to finish. This is what I want. And they kind of, everybody knew that's who, what I wanted to do. And I just started to, all these collectors who became my best friends were buying everything. And I ended up, being sold out for like five years before I even made anything. And I just went out and I would travel the world and uh, I still do this. And I have collectors who, you know, like one of my collectors, two of my collectors are live in Bermuda and they're like my best friends now. And they give me a house on their property and we had like a little, you know, motorbike, set it up with my plein air stuff. And I would just drive around. I stayed, we, my wife and I, uh, who was down my way at the time, but we would travel around the island and I just made paintings. And at the end of the year, they'd buy everything. And I've learned like an incredible amount about color. And I would come back to the studio and have enough money to like do whatever I needed to do. And this happened, I mean, I've been doing that for 10 years now, just exclusively, never even photographing work, never doing sales pitch. 
never doing any of that stuff. Um, and uh, that allowed me to get to the point where I am now. And I'm at this kind of cusp now where I'm starting to change and I'm dealing with museums and curators and I'm ready to show it to the public now. So it's, it's been a change, but it's been beautiful. It's, it's really been enriching. Jeez Louise, you need to write a book. My gosh, that's insane. What a story. Seriously. So are you 40 then? Yeah. Does that mean you're 40? Yeah, I just turned 40. Wow. Congratulations yeah, so, on so all I that just success. To, so I just started to read, like I'm talking to curators now and different um, museum directors and buyers and things. Um, I have funding for the next five years for this incredible project that like, I don't even, like, I don't even know how lucky I've gotten. And it's all dealing with things that are really, you know, they let me develop myself to the point where I feel comfortable now saying something. And I feel like that's a unique, I feel like as artists, we're forced to be something right away. Um, and I could just go out in nature, paint something and just, that was it. And they were failures. They were utter failures. And my collectors didn't care. They believed in who I was. They wanted to support me as an artist, not necessarily have a, a decoration. And I, I tell that to every collector who collects art. Do not invest in something that you like. Invest in somebody that you like. Because your taste and the trend of their art is going to change if they're really, truly looking. So let them change. Buy their sketches. Buy their failures. Put it in your basement. You don't have to have it be a decoration. If they're not doing it for you to hang on your wall, you don't have to. Like, support them in this. It's very hard. But they will become a better painter. And your work, if you want to resell it on the market, which I always say, like, resell it. Once it becomes a lot, you contribute it, resell it if you want to. But always give back to the artist and always allow them to fail. Um, make it an inclusive market. Uh, mm. So that's that's kind of my spiel on that. Yeah, that's yeah. seriously what a blessing. So tell me more about this project that's paid for for the next five years. Yeah, so basically what I'm doing is I'm taking my my youth, uh, which was being grown. I grew up in like inundated with early American art, folk art, and uh, the Pennsylvania German folk the kind of Dutch folk art. And I, st I started to look at the mathematical sequences in that, and I started to relate it to, to kind of the aesthetics that I, I was falling in love with uh, later on. Uh, and just kind of how that, that shaped the landscape and how these early American painters came over at the Academy and around my area. I mean, when I was first painting, like my favorite painter was Daniel Garber and like the New Hope School, and I really love these, like, and they're all from my backyard. And it was wild. It's like to have such a rich history. And I wanted to go back into that and try to, like, think about what they were thinking about and just the bravery of early American art and how, like, folk art, naive art, these people weren't incredibly skilled or taught. Paint was very hard to come by. This is the new world. Uh, There's a lot of problems in, within society that we're trying to be sorted out. And they created these incredible landscapes. The portraits are so strange and unique. 
Uh, the symbolism in early American art is so rich and like, there's so many American artists that don't know it. So I wanted to go back in and with historians, which I'm also working with, kind of look at what these truly American uh, painters were doing, think about that, and then use that to try to continue kind of what I'm doing here, but also like understand the history and the strength through time of what it means to be kind of an American painter from this, from this soil. That is kind of where I started to like feel family. And then uh, when I turned 39, I was about to get married and I was thinking about all these things and I was already structured the payments to, to start this project. And I ended up having like a, an issue with my heart um, that I didn't know that I had. It was a congenital heart issue. And it just, I remember I had this, this moment where I, I passed out and my dad found me out in the yard and took me to the hospital and I found out like, okay, you have this thing. At some point, we're going to, there's going to have to be medical and uh, there's going to be uh, an open heart surgery that's going to need to be had. And I'm thinking about all this stuff and I'm just like, man, I'm just like getting to the good part. Like, I don't know what's happening. And I just realized like, I kind of, these paintings are going to be around. Now I, 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 I look, later found out that I'm going to be okay. I'm going to have to do these things. Totally fine. Uh, but these things are going to be around longer than I will. I want to say something true because they will be me and about me and my family when I'm no longer here. My son will have this work. This work will tell our story. It's what I believe that they were trying to do back then. They're trying to tell their story. They're trying to, you know, the, sh the short lifespan of a person is so overshadowed by a work of art. So, like, use that. Take that. So now I'm uh, creating art about that about my family, about where we're from, about what we're going through in relationship to where we've been, you know, in hopes that that holds us longer than our bodies will. Mm. Man, I'm really excited to see what you make. And I love that concept, just painting about your own life experience, because it's really, frankly, the only thing any of us know anything about anyway. Yeah, it's <laughs> uniquely art. You right. want to do something some unique, do something about yourself. Right. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. more unique than painting about yourself. So yeah. I, yeah, I'm excited to see, to see what you do. Can you get in any specifics on what these might look like? Is it as far as just, uh, maybe not so specific, but just a general description on what you envision happening? Sure. So, um, like right now, what's happening is I want to work from life as much as possible. I've worked a lot from these constructed spaces and it it's just not it's just not filling me up as an artist as much as I, I would like. So what I ended up doing is like for one project, I got all these anatomical uh uh models of my heart, but not my heart, but of a, a heart, human yeah. heart. Yeah, and I'm using it as a still life to study the heart. 
Um, so I'm actually measuring and studying the heart, and that's going to be in front of a landscape that's uh, painted in the same historic way from where we live of, like, I'm getting really into, like, early American landscape painting and doing a painting like that behind it. So you can see these layers and kind of the leaf painting is kind of like you're framing to you're you're putting a painting almost like it's like a screen on an iPhone or not an iPhone, but on a computer. You have several like you and I right now, like you have several different screens and it's so you can involve more information than just the one mm-hmm. view. So there's several different paintings in one painting that's being put together, but they're all done from life. So you're you have a you're out doing a landscape painting, you have a painting of a heart in the middle of it, and you have to deal with the composition, but both of these painting styles are different, but they need to work together in order to tell the, the whole story of that, in that one painting. So I always had a problem with painting being like, this is my one technique. Well, why? Why use one technique? There's so many techniques. Use, you can paint like you glow in one and then paint like, you know, coal in another. You can do Turner and Rembrandt. You can do, it's not that hard. Like, why are you limiting yourself to being one thing? Tell your story, go use it all. It's all for you, just take it. You well, know, I think, so like, that's kind of- I think a lot of the reason artists do that is because that's what they're told in art school, that they have to quote unquote, find themselves or find a voice or find a niche yeah. or find a style. Um, and then, and they feel like they can't experiment. You know, I interviewed Kwong Ho and he said to me that he's got like a dozen different styles that he works in, but when he has a solo show, they look like a dozen different painters and he always sells out. They, it's yeah. it's not true. It's not true yeah. <laughs> that you have to be one person. Yeah. A lot of people are saying, will say like, why isn't code, like make it cohesive. If you're making it, it's cohesive. If yeah. you're <laughs> speaking about yourself, that's the cohesive element, it's you. Look, I, I mean, I get, I get the style, and it's there is an impact to going in and seeing a hundred paintings of a jelly donut, and maybe you get more of a feeling of a jelly donut than just one. But that's not all you you you, you have to do. Like that's not all to have a show. Make it exciting. People want to see stuff. I've walked through shows and I've spent a minute. I've worked, walked through shows and I've spent an, and uh, you know weeks. And the element that always gets me is, and I'm like, how did this person do that? And then that those two things tell me more about that person than just one. Yeah, you know, because I can tell that there are two things that they're looking at. You know, mm-hmm. it's like knowing somebody in the morning and knowing somebody at night. You know, if you go to a party with them, they may be a little differently different than when you have a you know breakfast with them. So it's kind of oh, like that's a good analogy. I like that person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're all very complex. So why, why try and pin us down to one aesthetic when our personalities, if if we're an aesthetic, would be very diverse. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So, and in looking at your paintings, you're already going there, but because you know you've got this one of leaf, leaf, right? Yeah, it's a great name, by the way. And then, um, and then you have this beautiful one of your wife. They're very different, very different. And then, but, but what's, but they do look like they're by the same artist. And I think that goes to what you were saying 
what unifies them is it's the same person painting it. You can't help but to put your own mannerisms and your own temperament into your work. It's like, it's almost impossible not to. True. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to scroll because we didn't look at a lot of your work. So I just want to kind of scroll through here for a minute. So this sure. one is the one behind you. And to me, it yeah. looks finished. Yeah. So there's a, there's definitely a quality of finish that does happen. Um, but for me, it's kind of, I'm thinking more about the things that I want from it. I can establish a finished looking painting pretty quickly, but I do think that there's a moment where you're like, okay, I still, there's something I still want to get out of it. And then you'll take it into the next year. And I actually feel like, you know, there's a lot of times like a museum or a curator will come and see one of these paintings and say, oh, no, just we'll, we'll create it up. Let's show it as this. And I feel like a lot of times artists take like once a painting is being shown, it's done. It's not. You can keep you can keep going once it gets back to your studio or wherever. Mm. Keep going. Um, I think it, I do think it's. I want to get rid of a little bit of the mysticism in the art world that an unfinished painting is irrelevant to be seen. I think that we should allow ourselves to maybe make art that is unfinished in, in a way that's interesting to ourselves. We don't have to create a product all the time. I understand the importance of that to a degree, but I do believe that like we should allow things to be open and explored and maybe think about art less as decoration and more of an investigation. We could do exhibitions maybe where people are showing thoughts that they're going to maybe work on for the next 10 years. And I think normalizing that aspect of creating would be much better and more inclusive for our market and for our for people to find us and say, like, I, I care about what he's doing. I, I want to contribute to that. I think that's one of the flaws is that we're so product driven. Um, for an industry of rebels and and investigators, we seem to like be stuck on making uh, finished, high, you know, like high, high gloss, uh, you know, works of art. Um, which I love those things too, but I also find it so interesting to go and see artist drawings. So the advice that I would give to artists that are coming out of these schools and feel the push to create a product or to already know who they are, already have this established aesthetic that they were going to die with. It, it, free yourself of that. Allow yourself to maybe start thinking about what you're interested in. When you look at art, what brings you to, to an exhibition? Um, you don't have to have these really refined, completed paintings. Sometimes you can just leave the idea out there. Sometimes you can just show a failure. I mean, we don't have to be perfect in the art world. We should encourage inclusive, an inclusive environment from people from all different walks of life. We should allow them to fail, to learn, to try. The, the idea of the masters is it, just, I don't think it's helpful for our generation. We should make work that is honest to us and allow the skills to develop as we do. Um, the exhibitions, I think, 
are helpful, but I think that we also need to realize that us as artists, we're in control. We're in control of how we're seen and how we're shown, and we can do it. Well, you just answered my last question, which is what advice would you give an aspiring young artist? And that was absolutely great advice. I really appreciate that. And and I'm really glad you sent me that message because it's been a huge honor to get to know you and I'm grateful to know your work. It's absolutely incredible. And also it's inspiring that you're doing, you're making a living doing this with a different and unique business plan. And yeah. uh, that's really inspiring as well, because I think a lot of us think there's only one way to, to do this, but in this day and age, it seems like there's a, dozens of ways to make a living at this. So I appreciate you sharing that with us as well. Yeah, I, I think it's important that collectors know that, you know, you just educate your collectors as well and let yeah. them know what you actually want to do and not make it just about, you know, the product, but actually tell them your goals. And a lot of times they'll want to help. Yeah, I agree. Well, thanks again. Mm -hmm. It's been great talking to you. This was a good one. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends. And if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week. Thank you.